0: This is the Commercial Property Show Australia, show number one.
1: Capital growth or cash flow They're much the same thing. If you're putting money in your bank every month and able to spend that money or reinvest it or whatever, that's actually, to my mind, a little bit better than waiting, say, two or three years for some capital growth.
0: What is going on, everyone? I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and we have an absolutely amazing show lined up for you today. We've got a lineup that actually boasts over 90 years of investing experience. I know that's absolutely crazy. We have James Dawson stopping by and he gives us some insight on why you should be investing in commercial property over residential. Mike Mortlock shares some tax depreciation tips. Chris Lang drops in and shares a pro tip about why the residential property clock doesn't really work With commercial property, and he also touches on where each major city market is in the cycle. That's a really good one to know. Commercial agent Edward McFarland gives us an update on one of the hottest markets in Sydney at the moment. Check that one out. And Mike Rodwell is our very first everyday investor on fire. Our first guest today is an educator and author. He has over 40 years of experience investing in commercial property, and he is the creator of the Commercial Property Cash Flow Blueprint course. It's Mr. James Dawson. How are you, James? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be on. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you for being on the show. So, James, why choose commercial property over residential? I think
1: primarily there's um, probably three or four basic reasons. and. The number one reason that I find when people sort of open their eyes to commercial property um, over residential investing is the higher cash flows and higher returns. So, you know, basically positive cash flow uh, on a on a property that's potentially double or even triple what you may get from a residential property.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's really, really <clears throat> good. Australians seem to be a little bit skeptical about investing for cash flow. Um, in America, that seems to be the norm. Why do you think most Australians choose to invest for capital growth over cash flow? Yeah, I think, look,
1: great question. I think uh, one of the things is that, you know, negative gearing and capital growth has sort of been banged into everyone over the years in the press and media and any, anyone talking about properties always talking about those two things. And essentially, when you look at it, capital growth uh, or cash flow you know, they're much the same thing. If you're putting uh, money in your bank every every month and able to spend that money or reinvest it or whatever, that's actually, to my mind, a little bit better than waiting, say, two or three years for some capital growth. But with commercial property, you can get capital growth as well. It's just all about the selection. But I think that's the thing is that, you know, that's been sort of banged into people. So they they just ignore that cash flow side of it uh, until the crunch hits and they decide they
0: haven't got enough cash flow. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, uh, when you're, when you're investing for capital growth, you're, you <coughs> almost guessing a little bit there, but with the with a cash flow, you know what's coming in. So there, there's no guessing. Yeah, that's right. And actually, because
1: commercial property investments are, are pretty, the value of a commercial property is pretty much driven by the rental income. You can actually pretty accurately generally determine what the value of that property is going to be in a few years and therefore determine what your capital growth, um, may be. And also, overlaying that, if you can select a property that's got some potential upsides that no one else has seen, uh, you can get fantastic manufactured growth. In fact, sometimes 10 years of capital growth that other people have missed out on in in a couple of years. Yeah, wow, if you just choose the right property. That's right. So it's about, you know, sort of knowing what to look for before you buy, of course. And, you know, some properties uh, that, you know, even i bought a, had upsides sitting there that've been there for probably a hundred years, and no one's in, even engaged them. And it's only when someone knows about how to do that that uh, you can then get the benefit of the manufactured growth.
0: Yes, that's right. Like your butcher shop, that your <clears throat> first commercial uh,
1: asset. That's right. That butcher shop in uh, Carrington, Newcastle. I was checking that out the other day, and that had a massive backyard with a separate street access, and even the owners now, uh, after I sold it, you know, years ago. Have failed to, you know, develop that backyard, and are potentially missing out on, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital growth and also, uh, perhaps, some rental income. I feel like going to tell them about it actually next time I'm down there. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, fair enough.
0: All right, yeah. James. So, where can people go to find out more about you? Yeah, so the best
1: thing to do is go to James Dawson Property uh, website. I've got all sorts of blog posts and things there and they can find out more about my courses there's all sorts of links on there as well and that's got some great general information about commercial property in general also on amazon i have a book uh, the seven day weekend it's all about uh, investing in commercial property for cash flow and, and growth so that's a great uh, resource as well it's actually a bestseller in its niche on amazon so that, that people like it so it must be good so that's a great thing to have a look at as well but obviously the easiest thing is get online and and perhaps check out my webinar there's a link to that as well on my on my website
0: all right excellent james thanks for being on the
1: show mate fantastic
0: thank you very much I'm here with Mike Morlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. How are you today, Mike? Very well, and thanks for having me on, Andrew. No worries, mate. We're just going to talk to you about some uh, tax depreciation today. Mike, when you're putting together a tax depreciation schedule, what are the differences between commercial property and residential property?
2: The main difference for commercial and residential these days comes about from the budget changes, from the budget speech in 2017. So that basically said that for anyone buying resi after that date, you can only claim plant and equipment if you're buying a brand new property. That doesn't apply to, to commercial, so you can still claim the plant and equipment and the building structure and w- and probably the, the second biggest difference is that there's, there's quite a lot more available from a plant and equipment point of view than there is in a residential property. Yeah. So if you're thinking about yeah. plant and equipment items, that's in, in, in a residential property, that would be ovens, cooktops, um, dishwashers, blinds, curtains, that sort of thing. There's five and a half pages worth of plant and equipment items in the ATO legislation and there's 261 for commercial properties and I was just chatting to the guys a moment ago there's a new one that's added which is actually working dogs so certified therapy dogs you know police detection and guard dogs so there's all sorts of obscure things in there for commercial properties. Oh wow excellent and what would the average
0: dollar amount of deductions you find per commercial property and and obviously do the do the different types of commercial property make a big difference in that
2: yeah they absolutely do so when you sort of say the average it's not not a great indicator of of commercial in a in a broad sense but if we sort of drill it down to say warehouses our average first year deduction is 37,198 which if you compare that to residential which is 9,414 and that's a big difference now yeah. Warehouses can be, you know, 80 square meters. We've done 20,000 square meters. Our average size for this data that I'm talking about was 1,027 square meters. So it's still a reasonable size. Offices, our first year average deductions are, are just under 37 and our average size is 543 square meters. Whereas if you think about a restaurant, the building structure itself, our average is just under 13000 but with the fit-out and the structure, it's 67199 So a restaurant is probably a good example of a commercial property that has a lot more bits and pieces to it than a warehouse or an office does because a warehouse is going to be, you know, tilt-up concrete flame a. Con- uh, a- slab i should say a tilt up concrete um frame and slab and then you might have some door closes and some light shades whereas a restaurant could potentially have you know the beer systems um it's going to have more sophisticated fire systems it's going to have furniture and cooking appliances and that sort of thing mike mortlock from mcg quantity surveyors has been my guest today thanks for having me
0: excellent My next guest is a mentor, coach, and advisor. He is a seven-time best-selling author and has over 50 years of investing experience. He is the founder of The Property Edge Australia. It's Mr. Chris Lang. How are you, Chris?
3: I'm well, thank you.
0: Excellent, mate. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Chris, it's common knowledge that real estate is cyclical. In residential property, many experts use what's referred to as the property clock to depict where each location is in the cycle. This one-size-fits-all approach doesn't really work in commercial property. Can you briefly explain how commercial property cycles work and vary between the different sectors?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, You're right. Uh, And even around Australia, the, the different markets are moving at different times. But basically, the three sectors are offices, industrial and retail. Now, the office cycle from peak to peak is traditionally about 18 years. And the reason for that is that from the time you think about building a new large office building to the day it opens is probably somewhere between four to six years. So they're they're lumpy and the cycles extend and so it's an 18-year cycle. Now, industrial seems to be around about nine years, and the retail cycle is about six years. So in other words, for every office cycle, you might have three retail cycles. Okay. Now, when people talk about a market being in boom time, that's when all three cycles come together at the end, and they're all rising at the same time as opposed to retail, which will have a couple of peaks during a, a, um, an office cycle. So it's never easy. And look, I mean, when I say 18 years, it might be 16, it might be uh, 20, but just as a rule of thumb over the last 100 or so years. Now, things have changed a little bit. During last century, the cycles or the, the capital cities tended to boom and bust more or less at the same time. But we've seen with the global financial crisis that that has disrupted the different capital cities. And whereas Melbourne and Sydney are strong at the moment, Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide all have been languishing. They're improving, but they have been languishing. So it's it's not clear cut and you certainly can't um, have a, a, a clock as a cycle um, you know, I mean, at the moment, Melbourne and Sydney markets, as I said, are strong. Perth's at the absolute bottom. Adelaide and Brisbane are improving.
0: Okay, so could you potentially have an asset clock? Would that be a better way of describing it, or a sector clock?
3: Um, well, look, possibly, but again, it's going to vary from capital city to capital city, and um, you know, I mean, for example, and and because offices are by far the largest, that's probably the best gauge as to where things are at. Um, and with offices, you need a vacancy rate of between 6 to 8%. It's a bit like unemployment. Unemployment or full employment is said to be around about 5%. If it's less than that or unemployment rate is less than 5%, then you're starting to get pressure on wages and inflation and so forth. Any, any higher than that? the economy's languishing. So the same with offices, you need 6 to 8% vacancy because there has to be, when the market's in balance, the ability for offices and companies to legitimately expand and contract and have space available to do that. When it's less than 6%, it's putting pressure on rents because there is not a lot of choice for people to, um, to relocate. And if it's more than that, then it's very much a tenant's market because they can pick and choose. Now, Melbourne and Sydney are around about 35 to 4%. Now, okay. normally, that, that would be putting a lot of pressure on rentals. but And the reason for that is that there hasn't been any pre-planning. It's it's just declined and declined. As I said, it's a four- to six-year period from thinking about building to opening the doors. So what generally happens in, in in last century was vacancies to get low like this, then all of a sudden everyone would decide now is a good time to build. This time round, um, and particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, Melbourne's had Docklands, Sydney's had Darling Harbour, where a lot of traditional CBD offices have decided to decant some of their admin and database requirements to Docklands and Darling Harbour where they don't need to be right in the CBD. So there hasn't been this this surge of redevelopment or or, or scramble to redevelopment right in the CBD, and also in this current building. And there are a lot of cranes on the horizon in in both capital cities. But this time round, whereas previously it's been what's called speculative building, in other words, they would build and and believe the tenants would come. This time round. You've got a pre-commitment of 65, 70% before they even start. So, yes, the vacancies are low, and yes, there's, there's space coming onto the market, but it's already pre-committed. Whereas Perth, see, and I don't know whether I'm based in Melbourne, but I don't know whether we're Victorian in name or Victorian in nature, but Melbourne never reaches the the heady heights that Brisbane and Perth does, but nor does it plumb the depths. I mean, um, Perth's vacancy rate got up to 22%. Wow. So, I mean, and currently it's... it's, In fact, I think you've got about 23, 24, but currently it's running about 20. Brisbane is now... It's come down from about uh, 15 to 11. Um, Adelaide's still hovering around 13. Canberra's about 10. So... You know, as I said, no longer are the capital city markets operating in sync. And so it's very much a local decision that's got to be made and understanding where you are in the cycle. Okay. So broadly speaking, Chris, where are the different capital cities in each
0: current cycle?
3: Well, as I said, I would say Perth is now about to bottom out. Um, there okay. has been, uh, and I'm talking about the office, which is sort of the, the leading uh, sector in 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 the health of of a capital city commercial market, Adelaide is a bit ahead of Perth and Brisbane a little bit more ahead of that again. The, the demand seems to be coming back, and so you'd say they're sort of halfway up the, the Brisbane, Adelaide and Brisbane are about halfway up the the upturn stretch of the cycle. Um, yes. Sydney, yeah, Sydney and Melbourne are Uh, are getting close to the top. And as I said, historically, I would be concerned. But because of the level of pre-commitment, I don't see that as an issue, and particularly in industrial space. If you look at how sectors respond, and that's probably a good thing to look at, the most sensitive to interest rates is residential. As soon as interest rates go up, um, the residential sector suffers. Now, retail is much the same because... If people are concerned about their home mortgage, they stop stop spending. But retail's sort of almost been in sale mode since since the global financial crisis, and it's 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 not a very healthy sector at the moment. As you saw, there's you know numbers of of shops or chains closing their their outlets. Yes, yeah. industrial has been generally running about six months behind retail. It's, because that's where retailers store their stock. So if retailers are suffering, then industrial starts to suffer. However, industrial, particularly warehousing, has had a real surge over the last couple of years with the online retailers, because yeah. uh, they don't need shop fronts; They just need storage. They just need somewhere to quickly dispatch the merchandise that people buy. And so Mm -hmm. industrial has been strong and it's probably strong around Australia because everyone around Australia is buying online and that seems to be growing. So the industrial seems to be even rather than have a disparity as the office markets do in the different capital cities. And do you see the (laughs)
0: industrial market continuing like that in the future?
3: Yes, I would for the foreseeable future. It, it seems we're not going to see a decline in the in the demand for online uh, merchandising, and therefore, from a, a warehousing point of view, as opposed to a manufacturing point of view, I see there there is going to be strong demand. Fantastic.
0: All right, Chris, where can the listeners go to find out more about you?
3: Well, one of the things I offer my clients is access to what I call my nine-step investment formula. Yeah. Um, And we haven't got time really to cover that here today. But a little while ago, I I gave a keynote address to uh, 1,200 delegates at one of Steve McKnight's mega conferences. And I make a copy of that available to my clients. And what I'd be prepared to do is to, and that's $67. What I'd be prepared to do for your listeners is make it available at a dollar just so that they can get an overview of what's involved and and then if they want to take things further, that's entirely up to them.
0: Yeah, wow, that's an absolutely amazing offer. Thanks so much for that. Chris Lang has been my guest today. Thanks, Chris, for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Joining me for today's market review, commercial agent from the Sutherland Shire, Ed McFarland. How are you, Ed? Good, Andrew. How are you? Excellent. Welcome to the show. There seems to be a lot of action happening in the Sutherland Shire market. What's actually happening in that market at the moment?
4: Uh, Funny you say that. It hasn't been a very busy market for the last couple of years. And that's due to a lot of the inner pocket South Sydney buyers, tenants flocking down to the Shire. Uh, just to find industrial space and commercial space for their businesses. And that's due to, you know, lack of supply, affordability, where you can see that, you know, the South Sydney market where Mascot, Botany, Allegiant, they've, they've been rezoned, the industrial places have been rezoned for higher and better use. And what's happening is is these properties have been apartments and uh, hotels. So we're seeing a lot of these occupiers, have nowhere to go, and they're selling for higher and better use, and moving into you know the suburbs areas as well as down the M5. And if they don't want don't want to go west, that's twenty minutes to the Suburban Shire. So we've probably done eleven relocation deals in the last two three years, and that's what's causing the, the prices to you know dramatically rise down in the Suburban Shire. So it's basically just an increase on the demand. Yeah, well, it's a lack of supply of. of of industrial properties, commercial properties within this, you know, around the port, because of the rezoning play a few years ago, are now pushing these occupiers and tenants out of the market. And the Sutherland Shire is the next best spot where they can cement their business, locate their business, relocate their business. But yeah, that's what we're finding. We're finding all these tenants and occupiers are getting pushed out of the inner South Sydney ring and they're coming down in the suburbs. And it's affordability, so it's a little bit cheaper down in the suburb you know they're putting some money in the back pocket when they've sold to a developer for a highways okay
0: and so what type of assets are actually in demand there is that uh, industrial warehouses
4: yeah definitely so you, as you can see the market today there's a lot of investors in the market and they're chasing yield based and income so if a property down in the shire does have a long lease in place with a good tenant uh, a good lease we're finding these investors chasing yields we're selling things for sub five percent down there at the moment wow sub five percent that's pretty decent isn't it yeah what kind of tenants are you getting lease requests from oh look they vary you've got warehouse distribution small to large scale we've got people that are being pushed out of the south city market botany alexandra mascot we're getting manufacturing but then we've also on the other flip side we're getting the smaller businesses high tech Retailing, so an online business that has increased their profit and they're basically working out of a small shed or their house and they're trying to find the next best thing, which is a small little, you know, high clearance warehouse with office. So they're the main tenants we're seeking in the market, but it's a vary. We've got a vary of tenants. You know, anything that can can hold lots of stock within the warehouse. So a high high clearance warehouse is in demand anywhere in South Sydney, but especially the Southern Shire. Okay, excellent. And and what kind of
0: leasing period are people after? And Are there any big players entering the area?
4: When you say players, you're talking large distribution centres or stuff? No, the Southern Shire, it was an old light manufacturing area with manufacturing and light industries. There isn't too much large property to be occupied down there. Generally speaking, most of the properties down there, they're probably – freehold property of 500, you're not going to get too many properties over 5,000 down there. But that doesn't mean we're not relocating businesses that have come from 5,000 and they're relocating and downsizing their business into the Sutherland Shire to something that's 2,000. Okay. Any bold predictions for 2020? I think we're going to see a stable market in the industrial sector. I think rents will slightly increase. But exactly the same thing as last year. Stocks going to be tight. Properties aren't going to be sold weekly. You're going to see multiple properties on the market. But when they do go on the market, if there's an opportunity off the market, they're going to be sold quickly. Yeah, and is that the same case for all the other sectors as well? Retail wise is really struggling in the suburbs. I think owners have definitely got to start coming to the party of reduced rents and very big incentives to get some you know, retailing in these suburb areas. Okay.
0: And what kind of range cap rate could you expect for, say, an industrial unit, iron to less than 5,000 square meters? What would you really expect cap rate wise for that?
4: 5%.
0: 5% is where
4: it's at. Okay. Net, net 5%. Yeah. So, like, just to give you a rundown, industrial lands in the Sutherland Shire is getting sold for over 2,000 per square meter over you know, up to 1,000 to 3,000 and it's 5,000 square meter block, you're going to be getting over that uh, 200 square metres. So that's quite a big jump in the last four years. And if it's a freehold property, uh, generally saying it's 500 square meters on a 700 square meter block, you're paying around 2.5 million. Wow. All right. Well, today's
0: market review has been brought to you by Edward McFarlane. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Andrew. Mike Rodwell is our everyday investor on fire today. How are you,
5: Mike? Hey, Andrew. Going well. Thanks. How are you doing?
0: Excellent, mate. In this segment, I throw rapid-fire questions at everyday investors who are living proof that commercial property is for all Australians and not just the super rich. Are you ready to go?
5: Yep. Let's do it.
0: Mate, so why did you choose commercial property?
5: Number one reason was positive cash flow after some experience investing in the UK in residential property and predominantly focusing on cash flow positive properties. I came back to Australia and I just found that the residential market was far more competitive and difficult to find the properties that would give me the cash flow that I wanted. So that would be the primary reason.
0: Yeah, Fair enough. Excellent, mate. And what assets do you currently own?
5: So I mentioned the residential, we still have a small portfolio based in the UK of five residential apartments, but um, since coming back to Australia a few years ago now, have two commercial properties. Uh, So that's one in Rockhampton, which is a kitchen showroom and then also one just south of Brisbane, which is a multi-tenant light industrial property.
0: Okay, so can you tell me a bit about the lease for both of those properties?
5: Yeah, sure. The one in Rockhampton, that was actually done as a sale and leaseback property. So it right. was pretty good because it, um, it allowed us to negotiate relatively favorable terms um, while while still achieving a win-win with the tenant. So that one's a five plus five plus five. Uh, and that also has a lot of security built in in terms of director's guarantees, cash guarantees, and, and those kind of things. So that's a pretty strong lease in a, a good location with a good uh, well-established business the the multi-tenant one has uh, at the moment it has four tenancies one of which is vacant but um, a mix of tenants is a restaurant there's a massage shop and also a tile shop so that's in a, a light industrial area so those ones are slightly different in that the, the property was bought with three of those tenants in situ so kind of had to accept what was on the table but there's some upsides opportunity to clean those leases up a little bit and add a bit of value
0: yeah fantastic mate Do you wanted to tell me a bit more about that they add value opportunities there on both of them
5: yeah sure rockhampton one first that's actually a converted pub some listeners may know that rockhampton has essentially a pub on every corner and then most of them yeah. have been converted back into commercial style dwellings but there's derelict accommodation at the top of that pub which is just being used as storage at the moment so that's one upside there that when the time is right, that accommodation could easily be converted into an office or uh, reinstated as residential accommodation. That's one upside there. And also being a pub, it was built with a a massive car park. So there's a fair amount of unused land on that property. And it's useful for the tenant at the moment because they've got some temporary type storage and containers and that kind of thing. But after talking to some agents up there, there's definitely an opportunity to put in some storage sheds as well, which could boost the uh, net returns there. So some pretty simple and effective upsides there.
0: Is there a chance to subdivide that land and sell it off at the back as well?
5: Uh, Potentially access could be a little bit of an issue, but I think that if there was an actual structure approved that it would be possible. Yeah, kind of shared access down the side of the property, kind of like a battle axe type configuration so yeah great down the line that could be a, an exit strategy perhaps to subdivide off storage and residential accommodation and keep the commercial or perhaps refinance on multiple different lenders and release some equity that way so yeah that could be could be a strategy down the line.
0: Yeah fantastic mate that sounds like a ripper uh, asset right there.
5: Yeah it's, a, it's um, you know it's a little bit more of a higher risk area but I think uh, having a very solid tenant and a long-term lease is what gave me the confidence to go ahead with that deal. So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's perform, performing very well at the moment.
0: And what cap rate did you get that at?
5: Uh, so, bought it at 10%. Uh, the lease that we negotiated okay. has 3% rent rises each each year. So, I think it might be a bit over 11% that's returning at the moment. That's really, really and, good for yeah, Rockhampton.
0: I think it's back down to like 9 or 8% now, isn't it?
5: Yeah, there's been some a lot more activity up there, particularly in that yeah. sub one million or up to one point five million range with some of these infrastructure projects going ahead. They're related to the mine up there or the, or the mining
0: um, projects. Yeah, so
5: some of the yields. Yeah, yeah. So some of the yields have been tightening. So um, I think we'll review that in the next couple of years and see, you know, if if the tenant's going to stay on after their first option, build in we negotiate with the tenant to see if we can get access to some of that, those upsides and be able to do those projects, perhaps sort of discounted rent, then hopefully the yields have tightened a little further and that might be a time to exit.
0: Yeah, fantastic, mate. And so what's your monthly cash flow for both properties?
5: Yeah, right now combined is about 125K. Oh, Sorry, I should say 10, uh, roughly 10K, so 100, 120, 125K um, annually. And to give you an idea, I think the Rockhampton one is about 65K of that, and then the remainder. So relatively, um, relatively balanced across those two properties at the moment. Initial target or first target is 250K, is where you know, my wife yep. and I would like to get to. But I think uh, over you know the last few years of being interested in commercial property and doing these projects, it, we've asked ourselves the question, you know, when does this kind of end, and while we're enjoying it and there's opportunities and you know, there's deals to be done and property to be bought and sold, I think that it's something that just continued to compound. So, yeah, that's um, it, mate. Two fifty k was quite a lofty goal for us to start with, but after being involved for a few years, it doesn't actually seem that lofty and I've seen examples of other people that I've dealt with that have just pretty much done what we're doing and just over the long term built that right up and created multi-million dollar portfolios and and Huge amounts of cash flow, so I think the upside is unlimited. But keeping a bit of moderation and risk control along the way is probably the way to go.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's awesome, man. And do you write these goals down every day, or is it like a one year? Like at the, um, the you know end of the year, you write write a new goal on for your target.
5: Yeah, I think it, it's kind of front in front of mind because I'm always looking at the market and assessing properties. So when I do that, I'm putting them into spreadsheets and one of the tabs on the spreadsheet is the cash flow tracker you know so we kind of got a plan that goes out five or ten years with um, if certain metrics are made in terms of x amount of property or properties are bought at certain yields where does that put us in one, two, three, five years time and having that front of mind all the time kind of has kept us quite focused on achieving that longer term goal so not something I write down every day, but it's, it's certainly, you know, at least weekly, it's something I'm looking at. Yeah. Reminding myself what we're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic, man. And have you had any major problems along the way? Yeah,
5: I think you'd probably call them hiccups or learning opportunities, but nothing huge. I think the, the first thing that came up was just the sales process with the, the first purchase. You know, there's a few things that came along in terms of understanding the contractual obligations and how to time that correctly with finance so at one point yep. ended up in a situation where uh, the contract had gone unconditional but we had issues with finance and i think there was about a week there where our deposit was on the line that was pretty scary at the time but i uh, worked through that and had a good result other than that there's been a few small things that have happened we had a, a truck crash into front of our, one of our buildings and uh, really the the thing that came out of that was having Uh, team behind us was very helpful. So good property managers, good insurance brokers and, and people to help navigate those processes that we'd never been through before. So that was really helpful. And then I think the one final thing I'd mention is just being really vigilant around due diligence when it comes to current tenancies. So in the second commercial property, we've actually had a little bit of an issue where a tenant is operating without the correct permissions. And it's not a massive hurdle to overcome, but it does leave us with a little bit of risk that if for some reason they weren't approved right permissions to work in there, essentially the lease that's in place is worthless. So we'd be on the hunt for a new tenant. So there's been a few things along the way, but nothing that's been so damaging to us that we could keep going and keep growing.
0: Yeah, it all sounds like a big learning process, doesn't it? But, you know, each problem is easily overcome if you have the right team behind you.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Good advice um, and also just an acceptance that these problems are going to come up. I mean, when you see people doing deals or you're reading about it or perhaps even some people listening to our position may think, oh, wow, that sounds lofty or far out or, or whatever it is. But the fact is that at every kind of stage, there's problems and challenges that come up. And if you go into this commercial property investing journey expecting those problems, hey, this is what I thought would come my way, not knowing exactly what it is, but knowing that you just work through it, you're probably gonna have a positive outcome. So yeah, lots of stuff to deal with along the way, but I think just putting them in the right context is the key.
0: Yeah, that's right, mate. And uh, what's the number one resource you would recommend on commercial property?
5: The pick one is difficult in that it depends where you're up to in your journey, but I would say firstly for anyone that's starting out, just grab a bunch of books, everything you can get on property to dip your toe in the water, it's not for everybody. So I think that would be the starting point. And there's three books I recommend, which is Seven Day Weekend by James Dawson, Engines of Wealth by Philip King. And then probably a lesser known one is Good Commercial Sense by Karina Barrymore, a little bit more industrial property focused. You know, I read those three books. Actually, I read another one. It's Chris Lang, I
0: think. Yeah, Chris Lang. Commercial property made easy.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think taking um that that's a really cheap and easy way just to take a read of it and see if it clicks because there's a lot of different ways to invest and you know, make money and if you read those books and think oh yeah this is all making sense to me I like the sound of it then my recommendation would be look at something like James Dawson's commercial cash flow course and yep that's a course that that I've done I've met a lot of people through there and you know I was pretty skeptical and I have been very skeptical of different educators throughout the, the journey of my investing career. And this one's turned out to be really, really great. Stand up guy, knows his stuff and can really get you kind of feeling a lot more comfortable in commercial investing. So I definitely recommend taking a look at that.
0: I definitely confirm that J- James Dawson is the real deal. I'm also a student of his. That's how we met. So yeah, he's yep. uh, he <laughs> is, uh, an absolute all-star at a commercial property. What's, what's the one skill or attribute? you need to be successful at commercial property?
5: Uh, propensity to take action. Yep. You know, commercial property is very numbers driven. can push your emotions aside, look at the numbers, and then be willing to take a calculated risk, which means you know, taking the action of the skills and knowledge into practice. I think that's the main thing. There are you know, some quite sophisticated things that you can do with commercial property or any property or any investing, but what I've seen, over the last 12 years since I've been interested in investing is so many people sitting on the sidelines just can't pull the trigger. Yep. And if it means starting off something small, go for that. Just just get into the habit of being able to move forward towards your objectives and you know, analysis by paralysis and all those kind of cliches. They are cliches, but they all exist. And If you're not one of the people sitting on the sideline, you're making progress. So definitely the propensity to take action is number one.
0: Yeah. I love that, mate. Thanks, Mike, for being on fire today.
5: Awesome, great to join thanks, you, Andrew. Buddy.
0: Cheers. Thanks very much for being on the show.
5: Nice one. Have a good one. Thanks.
0: And if you'd like to get in contact with Mike, his Twitter handle is at by the bulls. A massive thank you goes out to all my guests today, and special thanks to Kevin McLeod from Incompetech for allowing me to use the music. Please, please, please remember to subscribe, rate and review. And in the words of Crank Cardone, success is your duty, obligation and responsibility. I'll see you in two weeks. This has been a Developer Life production.